0: So we're going to start. We're here to talk about prostitutes. We're going to talk about Victorian women. And we're going to look at one particular brothel and one particular woman. But I'd like to also uh, kind of use her story and her house as a sort of a jumping off point so that we can um, talk a little bit about uh, Victorian women and what what prostitution and the lives of some of the women in her house, uh, what they can tell us about. Uh, um, the lives they lit, they led. My name's Doug Tettershaw and I am uh, grew up in Lexington, Kentucky and when you grow up in Lexington you don't remember ever not knowing the name of Belle Breezing because she is just a folk hero in Lexington. And um, you know I'm sure that they don't tell us as babies about you know the most famous madam from, from our hometown, but at some point you you'll learn about her and you don't even know when you ever first heard about her. I suppose it's when you um, first heard about Gone with the Wind because really a big part of what makes her famous um, even today is her role in the movie and the book Gone with the Wind. Um, she became the prototype for the character Belle Watling. Um, and uh, so at a time when she was actually on her deathbed. She people were getting to know her, you know, in in film. Um, I got interested to um, learn more about her um, when I realized that she's buried in the same cemetery that my uh, my father and my son are buried in. And and I thought, well, how does this you know nationally famous madam end up buried in the Catholic cemetery in Lexington? And so I decided to find out. Um, my work, I'm a, I work for the Lexington Public Library in, in marketing, but I'm really a journalist who's done like a lot of journalists, um, kind of retrofitted himself as a marketing person or a government communicator. So um, all my life I've always, I've written. So even as a working in marketing, I've always taken on freelance jobs and and that sort of thing. Always looking for ideas. So um, I read a book by Buddy Thompson who, he had really compiled all the material we have on this this famous madam, um, put it together in what was sort of a coffee table book, a mishmash of all of his notes and everything. And um, there were some answers to the question of how she ended up buried in that particular cemetery. So I decided to write an article about it. And nobody uh, bought the article so um, I just kept writing because I found that it was very fascinating to, to look at her life um, what's really fascinating from a writer's perspective is that we know so much about this woman who from her childhood as well as when she was famous and had this you know grand brothel and um, so um We know more about her than we probably would in a typical situation and so that became really interesting as a writer to want to you know delve into all all of her life because we do have um, so much material. Um, The reason we have material uh, Belle Breezing was uh, a born illegitimate in Lexington and her um, mother when she was about two years old her mother married a man named George Breezing and so um, her mother was named Sarah Cox, and Sarah Cox is the first prostitute in Belle Breezing's life. Her mother worked as a prostitute. Um, they had lived on a farm in Woodford County, and, um, and she had had a sister, an um, illegitimate sister, before she was born. Uh, they continued to live on that farm for some time, and then uh, Belle's mother, her sister, and her grandfather moved to Lexington. So. Um, while she was in Lexington, her mother um, worked as a prostitute. Um, she, there was a district that was sort of the antebellum red light district in Lexington, which is now um, the area, I don't know if you know Lexington, but Water Street was the street. So if you know, um, for example, the Lexington Public Library, where I work, is pr- pretty much in what was the red light district um, for Lexington before the Civil War. So um, so a couple years um, in, after she'd been in Lexington, Belle Breezing is born. Um, Her grandfather leaves. I don't know if it's because Belle was born. Um, Probably not because um, her older sister had been an illegitimate child. So, um, you know, but her um, mother eventually marries and she marries George Breezing. And the story of Belle's life and Hester, her sister's life, is that they have the name of whatever man her, their mother had married at the time. So when she married George Breezing, she was Belle Breezing. When she, her mother married um, McMeekin, she was Belle McMeekin. So, um, so for several years, though, she was Belle Breezing. And that became sort of her name, for, for really, for all of her life. Um, but the reason we know so much about her childhood is because George Breezing and, and Sarah Cox divorced. And it was, you know, an ugly divorce with depositions, and so we have all this testimony from people who were called up to talk about their relationship. And Hester also was one of those depositions, so we can hear from Belle's older sister about what it was like to, to live in their household. And basically, George Breezing is an angry drunk. drunk. He has, um, he's a periodic drunk. So there are times where he's, you know, he's sober. He owns, a, he's a shopkeeper. And then all of a sudden you know, he, he has these binges of just violent drunkenness, he's abusive. And then Sarah is also a drunk, and she also ends up working as a prostitute while she's married, and she's even bringing men to their home, so Belle Breezing is, is in a home where there's this uh, you know, sex traffic trade happening right there in their home. Um, so it's, you know, she's, a, tough woman, her, her mother, so she's violent too. Really, she's probably abusive as well. So it's a very physically violent type of household, and we have testimony about um, the shop, you know, they rent a shop, he gets angry at the shop owner, so they buy a shop across the street. So you know, you get this look at Belle's childhood, and the home life is a wreck, and it's violent, it's drunken, it's, you know, there's prostitution in it. Um, and we also know that when she went to school, you know nobody wanted their children to have anything to do with her you know her reputation by the time that she starts first grade is already established in lexington and she's you know she finds friends but they're few and far between she has two in particular she has a um a boy named uh, george sutphin and uh, um, then also a, a girl, they're friends, and so this trio runs around when she's a girl until the, the boy is accidentally shot in the face by a friend and he dies. So she has this kind of experience of tragedy you know, that we don't really associate with childhood at all that goes even beyond just the, the rough childhood she had in her home. Um, at the age of 12, she met a 36-year-old man um, named Dionisio Mucci who's a, a tanner and a, a tinker. He you know, buys scrap metal and sells it. He tans hides and he lives around the corner from them. And he, is, he, uh, he basically, in the, in the terms of the day, he ruins her. So he, that's her first sexual experiences with a man three times her age, at the age of 12. And at that time, it was legal. So there was no, you know, the statutory laws were such that you know, that, was le- uh, that was legal. So, um, he ends up giving her, on Valentine's Day, a scrapbook. And she held on to the scrapbook her entire life. So, another thing, in addition to the divorces, the divorce depositions, is this scrapbook. We have it. It's in, at the University of Kentucky in Special Collections. You can see what she, as a child, having received this um, scrapbook, what she put in it. And, and she um, kept, she was very fascinated with fashion ads. She was very fascin- fascinated with um, this is Victorian poetry, prayer cards, um, you really get this kind of glimpse into what she, what she felt like was special. And in her mind, she was really creating, even at that age, this sort of special world of high fashion, uh, sentimentality, um, poetry. She writes her own poems, and we have one of those in her scrapbook um, and uh, about kisses and how she loved kisses, and you know, so she, you get kind of an idea of her budding sexuality and her awareness of that, even at a, a you know, early teenage years. Um, and so you have that glimpse, and that's pretty fascinating to have the glimpse of a 12-year-old girl who became this famous woman. So, um, so there's just a lot, to, a lot of ways we know about Belle Breezing. Um, what happened to her, um, she has this reputation, even at, you know, as a first grader, She has this reputation as a 15 uh, 15 year old. She's uh, pregnant and she has a boyfriend, two boyfriends who are cigar makers. She marries one of them. And um, so, you know, she is on her way. She's living with her mother. Um, She's pregnant, but she's married. And you know, that's her life. Her her, um, older sister married as a teenager as well. You know, married a painter, um, moved. I think it's kind of telling, moved to East Main Street, whereas they lived on West Main Street, and at that time, East Main Street and West Main Street are two ends of town. Lexington is a, a town, a, small, you know, a fairly small town, and so they moved as, you know, they lived as far away from her family as possible with, and still be in Lexington, which I, th- I think might be telling. Um, Belle Breezing seems headed in that same direction. She's pregnant, but she's married. Um, nine days after her marriage, the other boyfriend, who's the cigar maker and work, you know, works at the same place as her new husband, um, is distraught. He's sending messages back and forth to um, to Belle. She is sending a note that she wants him to get her gun out of um, Pawn because her mother wants it. He does that, but then he goes to a saloon, has a drink, says, I'm going to Cincinnati. He's brokenhearted about um, Belle getting married. And so he he touches base with uh, uh, Moochie. So they're friends. This is all a circle, a very tight circle of friends. Um, He tells people, you know, I'll I'll see you later. I'm going to Cincinnati. And then he goes around the back alley to uh, Belle's house and shoots himself with her gun. Um, Somebody, a man is seen, almost certainly her husband, runs out, sets up her, drags the body that's in the gate to her house, drags it into the alley completely, sets the gun on his chest, which is a, you know, a manner that cannot possibly, you know, a gun doesn't just fall on your chest when you kill yourself, so, uh, and then nails the gate shut. So there's this really heavy-handed cover-up. Um, that you kind of would expect maybe a 15-year-old would pull off. You know, this is how you might see a 15-year-old trying to deal with this situation. And um, so, as opposed to a suicide, there's all this talk, especially in the newspapers of the day, that this might be a murder because it's so suspicious. Why is it, Why is this gate nailed shut? Why, did, you know, why is the body moved because somebody saw it in the gateway? Why is the gun set on the man's chest? Um, there are three in- inquests. All of them find it to be suicide, which it probably was. Um, but there is mention of Belle's husband, um, Kenny, is his last name, Kenny. And um, he flees to Cincinnati. So he runs off to Cincinnati. He, um, never, he never comes back to his wife. So all of a sudden, what looked like a situation that was probably going to stabilize, here's Belle Breezing. She's got a, she's got a child. She's, um, she's, her husband has left her, she's living with her mother, and about a month after this all happens, her mother dies. Um, she goes to the funeral, and while she is at the funeral, her landlord puts a padlock on her door and puts all her furniture out of the house. So she's now homeless with a baby and alone. So it was a quick turnaround for her at this point in her life. Um, she um, she gives her baby to a neighbor, Liz Barnett, and she goes and lives for on her own for a couple of years. And um, during that time, she probably is a streetwalker. She's we know one ha- apartment that she was living in, so she never she didn't go to a brothel right away. But you know, she has a reputation. Um, the newspaper, when she got married, wrote this sort of scathing article about the marriage, you know, tongue-in-cheek about, oh, Miss Belton, uh, law bell breezing is no more. She is Mistress Kenny now, and it's all very tongue-in-cheek. And this is a 15-year-old girl, and this is how they covered her wedding. So she has this citywide reputation. And, um, you know, the reputation can really kind of leads her in one direction. She ends up going to the best brothel in Lexington, and um, it was... We, we know of it as the best brothel in Lexington because we can look at city directories. We can look and see where multiple unrelated women are living together. So we kind of, you could, that's really your best way of understanding what um, brothels are like at that time, is to look at census records. Where do you see lots of women unrelated in one place? And the, this house, which just happens to be the Mary Todd Lincoln House, um, in Lexington on Main Street uh, was the top brothel in Lexington at that time. So um, Belle ends up going there and supposedly she went there on Christmas Eve of, I think it was 1870, let's see, it would have been 1875 I believe, or 18, maybe 1876. So she ends up at this, the best brothel in town and she has a reputation, she probably was welcome there, she was probably a good asset to have. Um, she stays there for a little while and um, finds out um, when, her, when her daughter reaches an age to start going to school that her daughter is handicapped. That she is, uh, she is uh, mentally handicapped, um, is going to need care for the rest of her life. So um, Belle leaves and starts her own brothel on uh, North Upper Street, which is right behind Transylvania University. Um, so there's a budding red light district in Lexington that's moved from this what was called the Babylon block Where water street is to this area because of Transylvania University uh, a lot of the you know the young population is there and um, so she starts her own brothel and um, This is probably the second one. She had on North Upper Street. She had two um, One now actually is still standing. It's the women's locker room at Transylvania University. It's um, they built a field, and they were not getting ready to knock down these old buildings, they found out this was her original brothel. So they left it stand. It's a three row houses that stand together. They're still there, and it's ironically the women's locker room now for, for that field. So, um, so she's, she's having success as a, as a madam, um, but she's put her, she sends her daughter to a, um, an orphanage and uh, boarding school up in northern Kentucky run by nuns. The nuns end up keeping her daughter, Until she turns 18, then she has to leave that orphanage because of her age, and she goes to their convent in Michigan, and that's where she spends all of her life. Um, So um, from there, she proceeds. She meets a very wealthy man, uh, William Singerly, who's from Philadelphia, bank owner, uh, owns a newspaper in Philadelphia, uh, paper mills. Very wealthy man, and was a key figure in getting uh, Grover Cleveland put in the White House. So um, she, he is the patron when she has to leave North Upper Street, which was a, became objectionable to the neighborhood. She goes to this n- new kind of formal red light district, um, more on the outskirts of Lexington. And that's where she builds her, her what becomes her famous brothel. So um, that whole progression, I think, could easily be lost. It's just kind of amazing that we have, because of the controversies of her life, we, we know that much. Most women who are madams, we could not construct that kind of life out of. Um, <clears throat> how she ends up in Gone with the Wind, she ends up, um, John Marsh is uh, from Maysville. He's a news reporter. He goes to, comes to the University of Kentucky, works for the newspapers in Lexington while, going, as, while he's a student. And This is like 1912 to 1917, he ends up going with a medical union, unit to uh, wor- Europe for World War I he um, covered the crime beat and so he ends up moving to Atlanta where there are more there are four newspapers instead of um, you know two that there were in Lexington so um, had better opportunities he meets Margaret Mitchell and falls in love with her um, they do not marry he she marries instead her his, his roommate a good friend Red Upshaw um, which is, becomes the prototype for Rhett Butler and uh, Margaret Mitchell told her husband, her second husband, who was John Marsh, that um, she wrote Gone With Wind. He asked what she was writing about. She said, I'm writing about my first marriage. And um, you know, that doesn't seem to be true when we think about what she was writing about. She was incorporating her grandmother's stories about surviving the Civil War. She's writing about so many things. But really, the people and the situation that's really at the heart of it was a way for her to express what she went through in her first marriage. It was abusive. It ended after three months. Um, You know, she was sort of a flapper who was a party girl and she was a catch and and Red Upshaw was a catch too and it just seemed like they should be together and then they got together and realized it was just not a good mix at all. And so um, after that, their marriage fell apart, she really, um, John Marsh was there to console her, a year and a half later they got married. She, um, she, a lot of what um, Scarlett is, autobiographical in a lot of different ways, um, and one of the ways that I thought was interesting and, and pulled into when I was writing about Belle Breezing, she says um, of Scarlett that she had a, a fascination with prostitutes. Um, Margaret Mitchell did too. And she, um, when she worked for newspapers, she lamented the fact that uh, she missed a story where a very wealthy woman in Atlanta had died and the, the cub reporter that went and covered it found out that the way she made her money was as a prostitute and she had a, a memoir written of it. Well, she didn't get it, she didn't get the memoir and, and Margaret Mitchell just lamented the fact that she hadn't been the one on that story because she, wa- she was fascinated with prostitutes. and She needed a character and needed this kind of savvy you know, hooker with a heart of gold that was going to bail out the men in Gone with the Wind, but also in a way that was scandalous you know, for them. and Also, she needed someone who was going to be the confidant for Rhett Butler when he had to run away from, from Scarlet. And so she was trying to formulate this character, and John Marsh told her about Bell Breezing. So Bell Breezing enters Gone with the Wind, and some of the parallels besides just the different, the Bell Breezing versus Bell Watling, besides just the name, um, Bell Breezing was said to have donated um, all of the linens from a store to the Protestant infirmary when they had a fire and they needed linens. And the donation was brought to the hospital and when the nurse found out where the, the donation was coming from, she refused it. So that ends up in Gone With Win. that scene from Belle's life ends up there. Um, she was known to have dyed her hair red, and that's part of the character of Walt, Belle Watling as well. Um, so there are a number of parallels from Belle Breezing's life that work into the character of Belle Watling. So anyway, um, she, um, she ran this fabulous house, um, there's the story of um, some men from Lexington who were selling horses in Argentina talking about Lexington, and a man overheard them in Argentina and said, why are you talking like that about Lexington? There's nothing there but um, the horse track and Bell Breezing's brothel. So it was almost a world famous brothel in that sense that you know people had come to know her brothel and it's because of the um, there was horse racing three seasons a year people from all over the country came for the horse racing um, there were the universities that were feeding these younger these young men coming to town and then there's the Spanish American War when there was a camp and Bells becomes sort of the unofficial um, officers quarters and then eventually World War One there's another camp and so um, a lot was feeding the success of her brothel and of the red light district generally. The house, You can see her house. Um, none of the other houses in that neighborhood were like that. You know, she had a fantastic house, but if you look around that neighborhood, it's mostly one-story houses, shotgun shacks. So, the, you know, her house really does stand out. There was a lot of those houses were brothels, but none were the s- sort of showplace that she ended up with. So um, so that's her story. Um, they shut her house down, um, really the Army did, uh, because Lexington had gotten this camp for World War I on the promise that they were gonna take care of vice, on the promise that they were gonna take care of the saloons. There was a, an enormous number of saloons, and an enormous uh, red light district, and they didn't really keep their promise. And the, you know the combination of the Army and the changing attitudes about a red light district. Um, there was a social hygiene movement that saw it—you um, know—the hygiene problems of the brothels. There was the temperance movement that, you know, eventually would start prohibition. Um, these brothels weren't um, hers in particular. It was almost more like a saloon. You went there and there was dancing, there's music, and then yeah, you go upstairs afterwards or, or later that night, but. The, what was special about hers, it was a $5 house. Um, that's five to ten times more than the other houses, which were charging 50 cents or a dollar. So, um, so it was high class, it was more expensive. Um, there was this party atmosphere. The women were well dressed. She took them to a department store after hours and she would pick out their dresses after hours. Um, so these, the girls that came there really had a very different experience than what um, a lot of prostitutes would have had. They were taken care of, they were, um, cons- they were supposed to at least act high class. You know, They may not be able to deliver it really, but they had to be well dressed, they weren't allowed to cuss, they weren't allowed to smoke when they were in the parlor. So um, they, were, they lived a much different life than probably was typical. Um, Belle Breezing, there's you know, this phase of her childhood which is so traumatic and we know know so much about it. There's this phase of her fame, which was written about and you know, well-known. And then she, from 1917 to 1940, she has another whole phase of her life, 23 years in that house, um, almost alone, You know, for the last 15 years alone. And we actually know less about those years than about her childhood. Um, there's a policewoman who went to school with Belle. She was hired as the first policewoman in Lexington largely to, to cover the women's issues that were happening that sh- in that red light district. From 1900 on, it becomes much more violent. There's murders, suicides, and, um, and a lot of that has to do with the relationships that were forming um, um, in the red light district that I want to talk about later. Um, so Anyway, we, we actually know less of her as a re- recluse than we do of her as a, as a girl. And um, so I think, and I think that's kind of fascinating. And I think it's kind of interesting to speculate what was going on. Um, the policewoman gives us a little glimpse, her doctor gives us a little glimpse, you know, but there, we know very little about what she was doing. She was just there, and it was while she's living in this house, people know, the kids know that this is a special house, there's an old lady there, she was famous, and then Gone with the Wind happens. And Gone with the Wind, everybody in Lexington knows Who this character Belle Watling really is and all of a sudden she's famous again and people are talking about her again and and then you know then the movie comes along and that's just stokes it even more Um, so that's Belle's life and I wanted to um, talk a little bit about what we know about some of the girls in her life because Belle's life is very singular if you're looking for a typical Victorian prostitute, bell breezing is not it. She's fun, she's interesting, she's fascinating. But part of why she's fascinating is because she's so singular. And she's, you know, so um, I thought it would be interesting to look at some of the other women that we, um, that we do know anything about. Um, and so I, I told you about her scrapbook. Um, Before she died, a reporter, a local reporter in Lexington, actually had a book deal. He was going to write a book about bell breezing. It never happened. He collected all these notes, oral histories from all the girls, all the customers he could find. And so we we have that information. Plus, um, at her auction, he went in the back of her house and rooted through her garbage. So he got all these photographs. And people, you know, there was this, you know, she had been a prostitute and you know we're fascinated with her, and because she was in, ended up in Gone with the Wind, you know, we, you know, in Lexington, they, they have a bell-breezing bed race, we have, you know, they have all kinds of, there's a Bell's bar, she's been a, on a, her name's been on a beer bottle, a horse race, a horse was named bell-breezing, and so she's sort of beloved in Lexington on some level, but in 1940, she was a prostitute. I mean, she is the woman who had been a prostitute, and there was this feeling that um, people need, women needed to be protected, so all these pictures, some of them had been torn in half to try to disguise the identity of these girls because the, most of those pictures are of girls who had been prostitutes in Belle's house. And in the uh, Victorian era, is you know, fairly new. Um, There's a fascination with taking your picture and almost trading pictures, like, almost like trading cards. And so among her, um, she has some famous people, vaudeville characters in, among her pictures. Um, But most of them are just people, and it was very popular, almost the way that people would, uh, professionals swap business cards today. It was very popular to to have photos of yourself, and you you traded them with other people. So to collect uh, photographs was kind of common. Um, So I went through some of these, because these are available at Kentucky Digital Library. Um, They've digitized um, UK's collection from Bell Breezing. Um, So these are women who are women either that Bell knew, or that were girls in her house, and some of them are madams. In a couple of cases, most of them are probably her prostitutes. Okay, so I just thought I'd show those, just because I think it's fascinating to see these women. Just you know, it's easy to talk about names, it's easy to talk about a biography, but I just think there's something to be said for just seeing these women, and 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 uh, realizing that this is the life they lived. Um, So I was going to go through and talk about a few of these that we really do have stories for, and I need to be able to handle my notes. So I'm going to put this up. Um, I think it's uh, important to remember that the first prostitute she knew was her mother, and that you know her mother was somebody who, you know, at that time um, she worked out of a, a saloon. The saloon had a room upstairs, and so um, you know, brothel like Bell's was a saloon. With, uh, with rooms upstairs. But saloons sometimes were also brothels. You know, So uh, it fi- was a very fine line. Um, Clara Kessler, uh, she's 16 years old. She lives in Cincinnati. And a traveling salesman comes up to her house one day, knocks on the door. Um, he meets her and he says, hey, how would you like to be in Belle Breezing's famous house? Um, you know, That's the story we have. Um, sex was probably involved, although the way it was told, um, to the oral historian, that part wasn't included. But she said, yeah, uh, that sounds good. And so a few days later, she gets a telegram from Belle Breezing and a, and a train ticket. And she says, come on down, um, come as soon as you can. So uh, Clara Kessler comes to Belle Breezing's from Cincinnati. Um, she takes the name uh, Clara Sayre. She meets a man, um, he's a young man, Her, his uncle is wealthy, has no children, so he's the heir of a, of a A fortune basically and um, so she takes the name Sarah they don't marry but she takes the name and they're going to get married that's the plan he is paying $24 a week because um, every prostitute in Bell's house was responsible for $24 once they made $24 they they paid Bell that $24 that was for room and board and for all the things that they were were seen as necessary for them to be prostitutes basically that were provided Um, after the $24, you could continue to work and make more money, or you could stop. So it was totally up to you. What you made after $24 was your own. So that was the arrangement the prostitutes lived under. Um, Clara Sayer, um, her boyfriend, paid $24 a week so that he had exclusive contact with her. And they were planning to get married, and he died at the age of 34 of, um, it was, Unexpected, certainly, because he was 34. He had pneumonia. So anyway, he dies. So um, she stays at Bell's. She continues to work. Years later, a man named Clem Beachy, he's older. He's ready to retire. He's a horseman from Ohio. Comes to Lexington on a regular basis. He wants her to start opening her own house because he always wants to bring his, his um, horse people, you know, the people he's working with, to his own house. So she bu- she, he buys a house around the corner from Bell's, and she's running it. Um, and so they, then he promises, I'm about to retire, I'm gonna go to Washington State, I bought an apple orchard, and you're gonna come with me as my wife. He dies, he dro- dies of cirrhosis of the liver at the end of that um, meet, And so, but he leaves, he leaves her all his money. So she doesn't get the marriage she was hoping for, but she does get money. So she ends up living in that neighborhood and spends her life there, and I think, um, Clara and um, Pink, Pink Thomas and Pearl Hughes, there's a real camaraderie, Um, there is a sisterhood that seems to exist in Belle's life. Um, You know, I think a lot of the madams in particular really liked being on their own. I think they were there because they did not want to get married. They liked that life of independence, and that was how they got it. Um, but they have a real strong s- feeling of sisterhood. What you see from the prostitutes, though, is this desire that they're going to meet a man, they're gonna, and they're going to get married, and they're going to have a good life. For Clara, that doesn't work, but for a lot of them, it did. There's a woman named Maud Blandon. She she's a pr- uh, prostitute in the equivalent of Belle's house in Buffalo, New York. Her madam goes to the races in Louisville, um, and Belle Breezing is huge fan of horse racing. So she's traveling to Louisville, she's traveling to Cincinnati, she follows horse racing around the region. So um, the madam from Buffalo meets Belle, and Belle's telling her about her house and how great it is, and it impresses this madam. So when she goes back to Buffalo, she's telling her girls about this fantastic house in Lexington, and Maud Blandon says, I'd like to go there. So um, the madam from Buffalo arranges with Belle for Maude to move down to Lexington, and she does. And there she meets John Riley, and John Riley is a major figure for the Red Light District because he's a judge, and he's also a customer for uh, Bell's. So he is the one who is helping them. He, he certainly helps them not go to jail, basically. I mean, that's a big part of what he does. But he is also sort of a patron of, of them. He's making sure that the girls are taken care of when they have a crisis and, and this sort of thing, and he ends up... Um, he ends up living with Maud. Maud leaves and um, he buys her house where they live together, unmarried for several years. Um, And interestingly, in the 1950s, you see a lot of what her story ends up being afterward. Um, because the family, his family, tried to claim that they were never married and that she never should have inherited his money. So when he dies in the 50s, there's a huge lawsuit where she has to prove that they married. and ends up they married three times. They married like in a church wedding in Lexington, a church wedding in um, Cincinnati, and then a court wedding in Lexington as well. So they had three marriages over the course of several years. Um, but you're reading this story, you're thinking, is this really true? Because, you know, it's just kind of fascinating to think of these two madams meeting at the races, and it, you know the story impresses this one girl so much, she comes to Lexington, she ends up married to a judge, and you know ends up being an heiress. Um, well, reading the coverage, you, there's this mention of a of good friend of hers, and they never said in the coverage in the 1950s that she had been a prostitute, that she had been working at Bell's. None of this comes out in the case, and the newspaper, certainly they knew it, but it was never mentioned in the news coverage. Well, the best friend that is referenced is one of the prostitutes. It's Pink Thomas that we know is one of her, um, is one of Belle's girls, and they've remained friends over all these years. And she ends up giving testimony. So you know that's Maude ends up being a woman who lands on her feet, and it really wasn't as uncommon as you might think. There were a lot of women who had been prostitutes in in the red light district in Lexington who marry. And you know, some leave town, but they don't necessarily leave town. They they marry. They're respectable. It was, you know, the red light district itself is this sort of bizarre thing that we have to wrap our minds around because the Victorians we think of as prudes, and you know, they had very strict codes of conduct, and you know, their mourning rituals are very you know regimented. We hear all about all this sort of thing. Um, the red light district existed because. Women, you know, upper-class women were supposed to be such pure vessels that, you know, they couldn't be handled by men practically. They couldn't be expected to satisfy their husbands. And their husbands were kind of expected to be so, so, such brutes that they couldn't possibly be expected to not, you know, get what they wanted. And so even though we have this sort of prudish idea about prostitution, it was definitely not approved of. But it also was seen as necessary. It's the only way this new idea of about of this you know, this the wealthy how what male and female were, because they really weren't their ideas didn't mesh and they kind of made this red light district justified. So I think because of that, the idea that, oh, she was in the red light district is well, okay, that's just a thing that exists. It was almost legitimate. Um, now what changed that was the violence that started to emerge and what you get are mo- a lot of um, murder issues, suicides, and these are largely about men becoming obsessed, you know, they have a relationship with a woman, but this woman is not just sleeping with them. And so it beca- they, you, you get the possessiveness and it really emerged um, um, as you get closer and closer to, to World War I and, and that's when you get to um, Debbie Harvey. Debbie Harvey is a woman from, she's local. She was married to a barber and she left him. And she left him and went to Bell's house. She's a very attractive woman, um, so she was a welcome addition. And she uh, meets a man named Ali Broadus, who's a butcher. And he is in love with her. You know, He's a butcher, so he can't do what Ephraim Sarah did and pay $24 to keep her exclusively for himself. Um, he shows up. He's got a history of suicide attempts. His family has a history of suicide attempts. His father even warns Bell, don't let him in your house. And Bell ignores those warnings. Um, then one night, Sunday morning, or mo- it's Monday morning, 3 a.m., and the only man in the house is him. He's in the parlor with Debbie. And Belle's downstairs with her ho- housekeeper. Everybody else is upstairs. And Debbie is calling from the par- parlor, help, help, he's killing me. And so Bell runs into her parlor, and he is stabbing her in the neck with a knife. And um, he comes at Bell, so she runs away. She screams for the, to the housekeeper to call the police. He jumps out a window and cuts himself, bleeds a path through Lexington, heading away from home, but towards the butcher, the shop where he works, and um, holes up there. The police actually see him on the street, and they, they talk to him, but they determine that he's not he doesn't have anything to do with it, so they let him go. Um, Debbie is taken to St. Joseph Hospital, and she dies shortly after arriving. So there's a murder at Bell's house. And one of the things that happened, one of the things Bell's house did for Lexington was allow the people in favor of the red light district to say, see, it can be done without violence. See, it can be done in a classy way see and so there's violence throughout the red light district but not at Bell's and all of a sudden because this is in 1912 1913 there there is a murder at Bell's and um, it comes out um, that it's not all that uh, um, odd the madams even start raising concerns um, they're talking about within a 10-month period prior to that three women have been killed um, two of them are murder suicides the third is a murder-suicide attempt where the man was unsuccessful killing himself and claimed when he was brought to that the woman had killed herself. So this is a pattern that exists in the red light district and it really is part of what gets the social hygiene movement and the vice commission going and they are the ones who really look at shutting this down. And um, so Debbie Harvey, you see the other side, the tragic side of, of where, where these lives can go um, Debbie Harvey's story is kind of is really kind of the beginning of the end it really is, it helps give the momentum to the public outrage um, obviously bribery is a big part of this you know this is all maintained through paying public officials uh, when the police are asked to, to do their own investigation of the red light district they said we can't find any brothels if there's any operating, they're impossible to find. And there were, according to the Vice Commission, 200 brothels in Lexington at that time. So, and the Army did its own study and had no trouble finding them. So, you know, this is, this is the situation that we're dealing with. And it was, it was becoming very transparent. In fact, what really was the last straw um, was this local report was filed with the Army, and it wasn't until after the army it became public record through through the army. So and that's how the public really became outraged and finally decided we're going to shut this. And you know the, there was sort of this public outcry that shut down the red light district and um, convinced um, a lot of people to move. A lot of women moved. A lot went. There was a home. There was a home for um, girls who who were mo- to transition them out of prostitution. Um, although not many went to that. And then there was a lot like Belle who just shut down. She was old enough, she was wealthy, so she didn't have any need to continue on. Um, Pearl Hughes is another uh, prostitute in Belle's house. And she stayed for a while and then became the housekeeper. And uh, Pearl Hughes is important in Belle's life because she was uh, the last person to live with Belle. When Belle shut her house down in 1917, um, the next year, Um, the city directory lists lists that house as unoccupied, and it probably looked unoccupied, and probably nobody answered the door because Bell became pretty reclusive almost immediately. But there was actually Bell breezing and Pearl Hughes living there. Pearl was the housekeeper, and um, she continued on to live uh, live with Bell until she died in 1926. That was the same year, um, in the same way that you sort of get these tragedies in Bell's childhood piling up almost at the same time, um, Belle, in 1926, lost her sister, who you know, was a widow whose two sons had uh, grown up and moved on. So she could, without any you know, impropriety scene, um, visit Belle at her house. And so she had re- restarted a relationship with her sister, but her sister and her housekeeper die in the same year. And so that really leaves her in those last um, 14 years of her life in complete, almost complete seclusion Um, So, um, I think it's also interesting her funeral plot. She bought a plot in the cemetery, moved her mother to it, bought a very nice sort of obelisk sort of uh, uh, place. She had, I think, six lots. Um, Her sister's in it, she's in it, her mother. But then also, um, Rebecca Hall, who died in 1887, and Sarah Denny, who died in 1929, these are both two of her girls. For whatever reason, and the span of years shows that throughout you know her life, when Bell saw someone needed something, she provided it. So she provided a, a burial place for two of the girls in, that were had been prostitutes with her. And then the uh, another, the other one is a man named Simi Colton. He died in 1938, just two years before Bell. He was a manic depressive. He um, Died of tuberculosis, and he spent his last months at bell 's until he got so bad that he went to the hospital. he died at the hospital. but he spent his last um, months um, in in bell 's house. He had been the son of Bell Campbell, who had been known as Big Tit Lil when she was um, working at bell 's house so um, so she had this reputation for helping people, and you can see it in her burial plot and she called it, it was called the family plot and um and you know, one of the things that really struck me when I was writing and and the image I really ended with was this idea that this was really her family that she had assembled it and that she assembled it based on um when she saw a need and kind of helping people out and there there was this sort of sense of sisterhood that existed I think for for all of the, especially for the madams but for all the girls that had come through there Um, They moved through, they had very different lives. Um, Some really ended up getting what they were hoping for, you know. Um, I think what looking at it thematically and trying to find something that's, um, you know, what does it tell us about Victorian women? And what does it tell us particularly about these prostitutes? um, Belle complained that her girls on their night off would find their boyfriend and go up and down the hill to the other houses, buy the drinks for their boyfriends, and, you know, go run around. And they all, you know, they, they, their dream was to meet a man and get married. And I think that it drove Belle a little crazy because she, she said at one point, I never paid for anything. I always made sure the man, the man paid me. And that was true. She was very determined and she definitely realized that men could be the problem. And then she she was very determined. I think a lot of what drove her was her determination that her daughter would be protected from from what she had not been protected from. And so I think that's why her daughter w- went to an orphanage rather than she could have um, gone to the the local mental hospital and spent her life there um, very easily. And the reason that she was able to go to the orphanage and eventually to the convent was because Belle was paying for it. So. Um, So, um, you know, Belle kind of scoffed at the fact that her girls were looking for a boyfriend and hoping it would get them, you know, lead to a marriage and get them out. But the fact is, that's what she looked for when she was 15, when she was pregnant. She looked to that solution as well. That's what that was her original hope. So this idea of, you know, the the prostitutes weren't necessarily running away. A lot of cases, they probably had had a boyfriend and been caught being sexually active and may have been kicked out of their family because the typical way things happen for a woman at that age, she would live with her family until she married. And what do you do if you don't, you're not married yet and you are been kicked out of your house? You know, and, and the brothels were, were one of the solutions um, among very few. And so Belle had faced that and a lot of the girls that were in her house had faced that. But they still had this aspiration not so much for independence as for a remedy for that. And I think that's interesting. I think it's not expected, um, but I thought it was fascinating that came, kept, that theme kept on coming up over and over again, that there w- was still this hope that it was going to turn out sort of the fairy tale, um, fairy tale ending for them. Um, I think a lot of people look at Belle Breezing and they see a businesswoman, and she was a great businesswoman. She was wealthy and she was independently wealthy and she did it all on her own. Um, but there was a term that um, I discovered, uh, Victorian women, especially upper class women, um, were expected to run their household. They were supposed to oversee the correspondence, they were supposed to um, you know, hire the servants, pay the servants, buy you know, the, everything for the household, and they were supposed to do it well. And there were whole guides, Victorian guides, for what, how a woman was supposed to run her household. And there was a term called the household general. And I think that um, Bell probably more saw herself as a household general than as a businesswoman. I think that she wanted to rise above her poor beginnings. I think she wanted to rise above the um, ostracism that she faced in her hometown. I think it's telling that she didn't leave Lexington. You know, why did she not leave Lexington? You know, it was a time of movement, especially Western movement. Um, you know, she, you know, so she easily could have left Lexington, but I really think she wanted to prove something And I think that she, I think she did. And I think that her image was, you know, I'm a household general. I have one of the greatest houses in Lexington. You know, I do the hiring, I I run these great parties. I think that really was a lot of what drove her. And I think a lot of, one reason she closed her house so quickly when, when the vice commission really did come down on them, was because you could still have prostitution. That was, that didn't end. But you weren't gonna have the parties. You weren't going to have the par, you know, she had three parlors and she could open them up to make one huge parlor on special events, and then she could close them too, and one of the things she said was that she, one of her talents was not knowing, not, knowing, not letting what the right hand know what the left hand was doing, meaning that there was, who was in one parlor was unknown by the men, the men in the other parlor, and that was sometimes important. So um, she loved that lifestyle, I think she loved, you know, keeping all those balls up in the air, and. And I think that that's why she closed when she closed, because she saw that it was never gonna be like what it had been in the Victorian era and the heyday of her work. So, um, that's sort of what I have. I don't know if it's what you're looking for, but. <laughs> Does anybody have any questions? I, I, I'd like to know what your questions are, because I, I'm... Yeah? What happened to her daughter? Okay, the question is, what, what happened to her daughter? Um, Daisy? Was um, you know she was taken care of by um, Lizzie Barnett until um, she was six years old, and then she went to school, and was it was her teacher that found out that she was handicapped, and then she went to the Newport Orphanage, that was run by um, nuns there. Then she went up to Michigan, uh, Dearborn, I believe, and she lived in the convent with the nuns, um, and that required payment. She pay um, Bell paid um, Daisy's board all her life, and after she died, there was you know she, Daisy was the heir, but um, there was a study of you know to show mental capacity to show that she needed the guardian. So Bell's banker helped Daisy the rest of her life, made sure that out of Bell's money she continued to be taken care of. Um, Daisy, you know, she's only 15 years younger than Belle, and she didn't live as long. So um, Daisy died um, within a decade or so of Belle, and she wasn't young, but, you know, I mean, she was, instead of, as opposed to 90, she, I think she was in her 70s. And um, she fell in a bathroom and, and, you know, broke a hip, and I think that's a pretty typical story that, that, that led to her eventually dying. And then she's buried in the convent cemetery. Any other questions? I mean, there's a lot of, yeah. Just out of curiosity, when you're looking at the census, do they have them listed as inmates or did they say prostitutes? Uh, uh, the question is how they were listed on um, in um, the census. I never saw the word prostitute. No, that was never used. It's not used in the um, census records. It's not used in the city directory. Um, Seamstress was a popular term. Um, Belle's mother was, was really a seamstress. I don't know if you noticed the picture of Belle when she was um, about eight years old in the first pictures that I was showing. Um, she has a very nice dress on. She was known, the woman who became the first policewoman in Lexington, comment, had commented on how well Belle was dressed as a little girl. And it's because her mother really was a seamstress. But frequently, seamstress was the term that a, a prostitute would use you know, she's living on her own, she needs to make an accounting of how she's living on her own, and so she would call herself a seamstress. And, you know, but in Bell's mom's case, it was really true. Um, inmates was a, was a common term in the census records, as I recall. Yeah Yeah. yeah, okay. Well, and I have to admit, there was one time I came across the census records where somebody had made a mistake, and they had Bell's family, and she was still with her mother. And then this list of, I don't know how many more women, like maybe a dozen more women, women. I thought, are they in a brothel already? Well, she lived next door to a girls' school. And they were inmates and they were, um, but somebody had just not written in that address to show that it was a new house. So I had to go to the city directory and, and that's when I noticed, oh wait, the city directory has this long list of girls right next door and it was a school. Have you ever seen a man listed as a gigabyte? Oh really, okay. Well that's good, that's honest, you know. What year was that? I think it's the 1870s. 1870s, yeah. Well when they did the survey of um, Lexington's situation, only half of the brothels in Lexington were in the Red Light District. And the Red Light District is in what's now Northeastern Avenue, which is um, the eastern e- end of uh, Main Street in Lexington near the Lexington Herald-Leader Building and thereabouts, if you know where that is. Um, so um, there was a lot of spread around, and outside the district, they were more likely to be an individual. Yeah, you had a question. You might be interested to know that in England, they're a little more delicate, and they call them Lemonade Ladies. Lemon, okay, the, Okay. so the comment is that they're called Lemonade Ladies in, in England. In England, yeah. Okay. So Okay, so it's just a way to talk around it. And, um, it, and also, it was well-known, so it did state their actual... Yeah, once you know the term, it's not really a way of hiding it. And you know, it is amazing how open it was. Um, one of, when Bell was still in, in, um, on North, um, North Upper, near Transylvania University, um, there was an announcement in the newspaper that Belle was about to have a major ball. It was the opening of the horse racing season. And so it was announced in the the newspaper. And of course, it was announced in the same way that her marriage was. It was this sort of tongue-in-cheek, you know, it was called a ball de, de demi-monde, uh, you know, ball of the underworld. and. They had joked that they were going to have a reporter with binoculars and a notepad on the roof of Morrison, Cha- Morrison Hall, a Transy so he could see into this, and see what was going on at Bell's house, and uh, you know they never followed up with that. But um, you know, so it was um, you know an open secret. You know, really, so uh, um, it wasn't really until 19, you know, the years leading up to World War One. It was formally condemned and it was really made illegal. And then it was still not enforced for another three years until the US Army insisted that it be enforced. Are there any other questions? Have you read about the house in Bowling Green? No, the question was about the house in Bowling Green that has a very similar story from what I understand. And so there's a book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in both stories, okay, the point that's been made is that just both in both cases there was a child involved and a need to take care of that child, which I think really I think it did drive um, Bell breathing. Um, she she's quoted by one of one of the um, prostitutes that's, that's uh, interviewed as part of the oral history in preparation for a book. Um, she recalled Bell saying that no man would ever touch her daughter, and she talked about how furious and and shaken she was as she said it so that she couldn't even talk about such a thing without being just almost, you know, you know, physically affected by the idea. Um, her daughter is said to have visited Belle um, when, and I suspect maybe um, when she left the Newport Orphanage she may have visited because she was about to go to Michigan where it would be much harder for her to ever visit. But the story is that, um, Phoenix Hotel was a major hotel on Main Street in Lexington. It's actually where the Lexington Public Library is currently located. And um, when her daughter did come to visit Belle, she um, got a room at Phoenix Hotel because she said that her daughter would never be inside a brothel. Um, And so there's some talk about that as something that might have happened. So there was a real determination Uh, The question is about um, the degree of Daisy's handicap. Um, The best thing I can say about that is that um, there was an interview done after Belle died. It was an assessment of um, Daisy's condition because they had to show that she was not able to take care of the money herself and establish the need for a guardian. And um, she, so you get a report of what she said in that and she came in and was telling the um, doctor that was doing this the interview that she was getting ready to get married that day that her mother was there and had already gotten married and that she was going to get married soon as well and she said that her mother was um i don't know i can't remember the exact year but she said that her mother was something like 15 and she was 25 so she had her mother as younger in her mind than she was so she clearly had a mixed up idea of you know time a mixed up idea of you know the fact that her mother was dead and you know this and the idea she wasn't getting married obviously so so um she was not cognizant of, of the world around her the way that it really was happening and here's a question. The question is, was she evaluated by a professional or by the nuns who were benefiting from her being there? She was evaluated by well i I don't think that's true actually I mean she the nuns weren't the heirs beyond i don't know what what happened to her money. Um, I know that everything was auctioned off and and went into an account and I don't know what happened when daisy i don't know what the trail of the money is. Um, the next, I assume, the heirs would have been um, Hest- uh, Hester's sons who were living in Vancouver at that time. But she was evalu- she wasn't evaluated by the nuns. I don't remember the name, um, but it wasn't—it was. I think it was a doctor, and it was a male name. Um, so someone was, on behalf of the court, was evaluating her. Yeah, but I think that's an interesting question, that um, where did her money go? Because when they sold her, they, the auction was a major, major deal. And part of the oral history of the auction is almost as fascinating as the history, uh, oral history of the, the prostitutes. Uh, Mildred Chandler was there, um, Happy Chandler's wife. Um, and a man who would become a judge under uh, John F. Kennedy was there with his mother. Or maybe it was his aunt she insisted on going because she just had to see and you know there's they're bringing out this stuff um, the story from the judge was that he, they were in the back there was a man you know, they had to do the auction outside because they couldn't fit everybody inside the house and um, there's a picture of them at the auction and you know it's a river of people you can't see the street because it's covered with people and he so this man is bidding on this bracelet and he's you know, the judge says to to his aunt he says why is that man not getting up closer to see that bracelet he's been on? And she said, well, he's seen that bracelet before. (laughs) So, you know, there's a lot of people coming back to the house to see this stuff they remember. And then there's also just this fascination. This is right after, I mean, Gone with the Wind is still out in theaters. And you just think, you know, how you know that's memorabilia from this movie as much as it is from Bell Breezing, so there was a you know huge fascination. The fire chief bought her Nickelodeon and found twenty five dollars worth of nickels in it, so he probably paid for itself right there the bed her she wrote uh, bought she had this huge bed with matching you know dresser and a whole bedroom suit and um one of the friends of hers um, it was um, it might have been Clara Sayre, Came around at the end of the, the last day, went upstairs and bid and bought the bed and the whole bedroom suit. And she said, "I was there when she bought it, and I wanted to have it." She paid sixteen hundred dollars for it. Um, but and this sort of gets to what you're talking about with the the nuns and where does this money go? Um, a woman buys the house. Flora Hudson opens it up as a boarding house because it's got two halls of. 20 bedrooms in the back and so it operates as a boarding house until 1973 when a boy is playing matches and accidentally starts a fire and burns the place down and then there's another auction but this is for Flora Hudson because she now owns the house but part of the property in that house that is auctioned off as Flora Hudson's is this bedroom, bedroom suit so apparently Clara Sarah bought it but never moved it because it was huge she wouldn't have had anywhere to put it um, so it ends up sold as part of Flora Hudson's estate and eventually, a lawyer pays um, like eight times the $1,600 to, to have it because it's known to be Belle Breezing's bed. So it, it is in the area. But you know that memorabilia has been scattered all over the region. Really, people will say, "Oh, I've got something from," and they sold bricks from the house. So those are around too. Um, so that's pretty fascinating. That you know, the, the auction itself is just you know a huge deal, and the people running up and down on the day they sold her dresses you know these Victorian dresses people you know girl women running up and down in these dresses they've just bought for you know a couple dollars and the University of Kentucky theater departments um, bought a bunch for um, stage plays and stuff and a bunch I assume that those are the ones that have moved into this collection at UK um, for the um textile study and the study of, you know, so it is, her dresses are still studied at UK and still kept and cared for at UK. So, any other questions? All right, well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it.